Our Old Testament text today comes from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was without shape or form. It was dark over the deep sea, and God's wind swept over the waters. God said, Let there be light, and so light appeared. God saw how good the light was. God separated the light from the darkness. God named the light day and the darkness night. There was evening and there was morning, the first day. Amen. I would also invite you to turn this morning to the gospel text for today, Mark, the first chapter. The text is verses 4 through 11. If you're present with us this morning and able, I'd invite you to stand with me in honor of the Lord's word. John was in the wilderness calling for people to be baptized to show that they were changing their hearts and lives and wanted God to forgive their sins. Everyone in Judea and all the people of Jerusalem went out to the Jordan River and were being baptized by John as they confessed their sins. John wore clothes made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. He, he announced, one stronger than I, than I am is coming after me. I'm not even worthy to bend over and loosen the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. About that time, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. While he was coming up out of the water, Jesus saw heaven splitting open and the Spirit, like a dove, coming down on him. And there was a voice from heaven, you are my son, whom I dearly love, in you I find happiness. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There are a couple of Old Testament stories that are uh, central to understanding all of the scripture. Uh, the first of those stories is in Genesis, the 12th chapter. It's this moment where God comes to a, a man and a woman, Abram and Sarai, and comes to them and says, um, hey, yo, um, what you up to? Are you ready for something new? Why don't you follow me? But in order to do that, you're going to have to do uh, a couple of things. You're, you're going to have to leave. You're going to have to separate yourself. Separate yourself from everything you're familiar with. Separate yourself from everything you know. Separate yourself from your places of protection and provision. You're going to have to separate yourself and come and follow me. But if you do that, I, I will make you this covenant, this promise. I, I will not leave you. I will fill your life with my presence and with my reality. And if you will do that, I will, I will give you so many kids and grandkids, and I will give you a people who will then follow like you, will follow my voice, and they will be a blessing to the world. Separate yourself out. I will fill you with my presence and you will be a blessing to the world. The second story that you really have to know in order to understand what the gospel is about, and this will shock you that I bring this up today, it's really the entire book of Exodus. Um, there's so many pieces of that story that are important to the gospel, but one in particular today. The people of God find themselves at the Red Sea. God has told Pharaoh to let his people go. He has heard their cries, and 
and he has deconstructed Pharaoh's power 10 different ways. And finally, Pharaoh says, okay, okay, I'll let them go. But the people stand at the bank of the Red Sea, and Pharaoh changes his mind. And the chariots and horses and the military might of Egypt comes galloping down upon the people. And they are stuck between the devil and the deep blue sea. <laughs> Sometimes when we read Exodus, I, I think that we um, somewhat fairly, but also somewhat unfairly, we, we think of the people mainly as groaners and whiners and complainers. That they, they have some whiny moments in Exodus. But as I read history, especially the history of slavery, I'm often struck by the ways in which systems of slavery were able to be sustained through a couple of things. I, I mentioned, I think last week, I'm reading Alexander Hamilton's biography again, and, and I was struck in his early years, he is in the Sugar Islands, he's off the coast and was raised in those places where sugar had been discovered and we could grow it, but, but the people were growing it primarily with slave labor, and the, the thing that was challenging was that you had all of these slaves, but they outnumbered the masters on the island. And so the folks who were holding these people enslaved had to constantly think about, one day they may figure out there's more of them than there is of us. And they may decide to rebel. And so we live in constant fear of that rebellion. And so here's what we have to do in order to make that, in order to keep them from rebelling. We have to tell them stories about how inferior they are. And likewise, we have to constantly tell ourselves stories about how superior we are. And we have to tell those stories in, in multiplicity of ways so that that imagination will continue to shape them and they will think of themselves as inferior. But the other thing we're going to have to do, we have to do acts of incredible cruelty so that if anybody even thinks about rebelling, we make an example of them. And so we lynch them or we kill them or we abuse them in ways publicly for all to see, to say, if you go against the authorities, this is what happens to you. The reason why that is important is because whenever I come to that narrative where the people of God are, are at the Red Sea and are panicking when they see Pharaoh coming and they're complaining to Moses, you brought us to the desert to die. It is not just a group of whiny people. It is a people who for generations have been told, you are inferior, we are superior. And who have experienced terror for generations. That says, and if you try to rebel, we will throw your babies in the Nile. We will participate in acts of violence. We will make displays of you so that no one else living under the authority of Egypt will think that they can rebel against this power. And so when I come to that text, I, I think about the fear of those people as they realize what has happened and as they scream to Moses and to God, what have you done? You have elevated our hopes so that now Pharaoh will come and annihilate us in the desert and make an example of us so that the whole world knows, do not do that. And in those cries, in that moment of fear, 
a breeze begins to blow. A breath. In Hebrew, a ruach begins to blow. And blows across their fears and their terrors. And blows across the waters that trap them. And that wind begins to blow across those waters and the craziest thing happens. The waters begin to part in two. And in that moment, it is as though God says to them, are you done? Are you done with these false stories? Are you done believing that you are worthless? Are you done believing that the only future you have is slavery? Are you done? Jump in. (laughs) Walk through. Enter in. Walk with me. Come through the waters. Follow my breath to the other side. And the people of God do a crazy thing. They trust one more time. Trust that this, whatever it is that is blowing across our lives that seems to push the waters apart, will stay there until we get to the other side. And we'll somehow open a way for a new life to happen. And sure enough, you know the story. They get to the other side and All that has held them captive is destroyed in the waves of the sea. And they get into a wilderness where they learn a Torah, a law, a new way of God. And eventually, after a time of testing that begins to shape them, they go through the water one more time, this time the Jordan. And they enter into the promised land to begin to try to live together this life that God has called them to. It would be great if the story ended there. Wow, I'm ready to give an altar call and we're barely into this thing. Um, But you know the story, it it functions okay. Eventually they get tired and their imagination gets, gets reshaped and they decide rather than live the unique life God has called them to, we'll just be like everybody else and let's have a king. And some of those kings are okay, most of them not so okay. They wind up in captivity again in Babylon. This morning, um, you've heard two texts. um, Genesis chapter 1. If you have your Bible with you, I'd invite you uh, to turn with me to Genesis 1 again this morning. When the people end up in Babylon and in captivity, I want to offer you, this is the right metaphor for today. I kind of want to throw you in the deep end for a little bit. What I'm about to say to you may not be true. I think it is, but it may not be, and I don't want to fight about it. And I don't want you to get angry about it. Because I could be wrong, and I don't know that it makes that big a difference. But but I am kind of convinced that the text that we have in front of us, Genesis 1, and probably Genesis 1 through 11, that takes us from creation to the Tower of Babel, probably emerged in the life of Israel during that time of exile in Babylon. And here's why I think that. First of all, the Tower of Babel sounds a lot like Babylon, but that's another story in another sermon. 
but also because as scholars think about their life and their time there, it seems clear that the Old Testament as we have it began to emerge in that time period and after it. But in that time period, they are in slavery again, and Babylon has all sorts of narratives about how the creation happened and how about how the world got to where it is. And most of those stories include like water and sea monsters and big wars. And the heart of those narratives basically said this, here is the way the world is. It is always warfare. It has always been warfare and it will always be warfare. And here's how it happens. The gods favor some people with power and strength and might and ingenuity and other people not so much. And so the history of the world has always been warfare and some people who are strong and other people who are not, some people who are blessed, others who are cursed. And that is why our life today is what it is, says Babylon and the king of Babylon. We are people in power. These folks that we have subjected to us are slaves and they're not, they're not whole people. They're like the gods to the humans. We are to them. And I'm convinced that what Israel begins to do, inspired by God, is begin to either take stories that have been with them for a long time and put them down, or they begin to imagine those stories and their creation story as a counter story to the story Babylon has been telling them, that oppresses them and tells them they're worthless and they're enslaved. And so their story begins this way. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Now, I don't have to go through this with all of you again, but you know how much I love those two Hebrew words there. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was tohu and bohu, those two twin wrestlers that we've talked about several times over the last five and a half, almost six years now. You can't pass the test without knowing about Tohu and Bo. But you have these twins, these twins of chaos that are always symbolized by water. We also heard it in the call to worship this morning, Psalm 29. The Lord's voice is over the waters. Tohu and Bohu, those twins of chaos, formlessness and void that break life, that make life a mess. God has authority over those waters. But if you're with me, in the same way that Israel remembers the story of being at the Red Sea and a breath, a wind from God, sweeping over those waters and separating those waters in order for a new creation to begin. They think back and they say, this is how God always creates. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was like that Red Sea. It was tohu and bohu, no future, no order, nothing to give it life and meaning. But the ruach, the breath of God, swept across those waters and separated those waters. Are you with me? That's really good preaching, by the way. I'm throwing my glasses around. That's so bad. Um, And so they tell the story in that kind of way. As again, the God who creates by bringing life and light out of the chaos of the waters. Now you hopefully know this already. But Genesis 1, that amazing hymn of creation, starts with three separations. On day one, God separates the light and dark. 
On day two, God separates the sea and sky, places the dome in the midst of the water, separates the waters above the dome from the waters that are below the dome. Waters above the dome, he called sea, uh, sky. The waters below the dome, sea. There was evening, there was morning the second day. And then God separated out the dry land on day three. Now on day four, five, and six, God looks at the tohu, the formlessness, that he's now defeated by creating form by three forms of separation. He now takes on the bohu, the emptiness, by on day one, taking the light and dark that he separated on day one and filling it with the sun, moon, and stars. And then on day two, what was day two? Sea and sky. On day five, he fills the sea and sky with birds and fish. And then what he separated out on day three, the the dry land, he then fills on day six with animals and humans. So if you're with me this morning, and I, I've given this to you three or four times, so I, I don't know why you wouldn't be with me. But, but what I want you to know in your heart, because I am convinced this is what the people of God want us to know in our heart, is in the same way that in the Exodus story at the Red Sea, the Ruach of God separated the waters and created new life in the same way that God called Abram and Sarai to be separate and filled and then blessed. They tell the creation story this way. God separated, 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 then filled, 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 so that then on day seven, there could be a shalom and a blessing to the world. And this is the story that not only informs their hopes when they encounter chaos and shapes them with an identity that believes that God is forming something new in them. But it says to them, this is the way God does it. That's why when we get to the New Testament, we should not be surprised that the Greek word for church is a word that means called out, separated, brought out from the world. So that like our sisters and brothers in faith at the day of Pentecost, we can then be filled with the Spirit. So that we can create a safe, holy huddle in a little Mayberry called Nampa. No. So that we can go and be a blessing to the world. Separation, filling, a blessing. And so Genesis 1 celebrates that, that this is the way God operates. God's breath blows across the face of the waters. Now, if you'll turn with me to the gospel text, Mark. On this Sunday, we traditionally celebrate the baptism of Jesus. In fact, every year when we get to this Sunday, one of the gospel texts that narrates the baptism of Jesus is the gospel text for today. Mark gives us the shortest version of those baptism narratives. If all we had was Mark, we would have had a very boring Christmas, a very short one, not much of a Christmas Eve service. But in Mark, John the Baptist shows up, this strange figure wearing weird clothes and really eating weird things. A prophetic figure, almost like he walked out of the Old Testament, comes in with the words of Isaiah and the imagination of the prophets dripping off of his lips. Calling the people out to the wilderness, bing, bing, bing. Come out to the wilderness, enter into the waters, bing, bing, bing. Prepare for this new thing that God is going to do. In some of the other gospels, we're told that not only did all sorts of people come out to experience this baptism of John, but there were a few that weren't real happy about it. 
It is likely, we're not told great details why they aren't happy, but it's likely that baptism was in that day probably a rite that if you were a Gentile and you had decided to convert to Judaism, there were a number of things that you had to do. You had to get circumcised. You had to participate in some other Jewish practices. But it's likely you also had to get baptized. Because we, speaking as first century Jews, we've already been through the water. Didn't I just tell you? Our people were at the Red Sea. We walked through the waters. We went through not only the Red Sea, we went through the Jordan. We've been in the water. You Gentiles, get in the pool. Jump in. But here is John the Baptist, not just inviting Gentiles, but inviting Jews who've already been through the water to go in the water. Oh. You can understand why the Pharisees think, we, didn't, oh, we are not going in the water. We have been through the water. Our people have been through the water. What do we have to repent of? But John is inviting a people who have already been through the water to go through the water again. To repent. To be tired of life the way it is. And to prepare for the new thing God is doing. And then Mark, John is kind of cloudy about it. I don't know what he's doing, but prepare the way. Somebody's coming. And it's going to be good. I don't, I'm not sure I even am worthy to tie his shoes. There's one who's coming. And then in Mark, suddenly Jesus appears from Nazareth in Galilee and enters John's baptism. I have to say, that's a little bit controversial over the history of the church. We haven't always quite known what to do with the fact that Jesus submitted himself to a baptism that was primarily about repentance. For why in the world would one who has no sin have to enter the water like a common sinner? Hmm. What do we do with that? It's been problematic for a few theologians across the centuries. Likely what we have is that Jesus, with the people, is prepared for God to do a new thing in the world. What we know about Jesus was that Jesus, as Paul says, was never one to claim his position, always willing to empty himself, even to submit himself to baptism and repentance. But most importantly in the story, submit himself to what the water symbolized, to submit himself to death, to, like Jonah, sink in the depths of the waters put to death one way of existence so that a new form of being can come out and emerge from the waters. Amen. The wildest thing happens. Jesus comes out of the waters and the heavens, Mark says, the heavens open up. By the way, this is so cool. I, I don't know if you'll think it's cool, but it's so cool. John the Baptist, who's just, whose lips just drip with Isaiah, all of a sudden, this whole scene drips with the words of Isaiah. In Isaiah, the prophet prays, oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. And Mark says, that's exactly what happened. The, the heavens tore open and God came down and rained power and wrath. No, the heavens opened 
And God, the presence of God descended like a dove in peace. And the voice of God that spoke creation into being, the voice of God says, this is my son. This is my son. This is when the really good stuff starts and the new creation gets launched. It's powerful. Today, I, there's a part of me, and we don't have time, wanted to preach all the texts today. There's one last text. That, you know, there's four texts for each of these Sundays. The next one, the epistle text, comes from Acts 19. You should read it sometime this week. It's a really brief opening part of Acts 19. It's this moment where Paul is in Ephesus, and he encounters some disciples who have come to faith through Apollos. And he's kind of shocked, first of all, to meet some disciples in Ephesus. And he says to them, you're disciples. They say, yeah. Well, have you been baptized? They say, oh, yeah, we got baptized. Well, whose baptism did you get baptized by? And they say, oh, we got baptized with John's baptism. To which, by the way, Paul does not say, oh, no, not John's baptism. Send a pigeon to Apollos. This has to stop immediately, right? Like, Thanks for being with me. That's the best joke I got today, so hang with me. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's fine. Because, a, because baptism is not complete without beginning with repentance. But Paul says, oh, there's so much more to that. When Jesus got baptized, he entered the waters with John's baptism of repentance, but he came out of the water empowered by the Spirit to be what God wants us to be in the world. And so let's throw you in the water again and baptize you in the name of Jesus. And it's this powerful text where they're baptized in the name of Jesus. They're filled with the Spirit. And these folks who are longing and working to be disciples now are Spirit-filled embodiments of new creation. That's good. So all of that, by the way, if you're with me, all of that's so good. I have such good theology. But... Whenever I try to preach this stuff, there's a very important question preachers hopefully eventually come to, and that is this, who cares? Like, what does that have to do with you? What does that have to do with us? This week, as I was thinking about these texts and their significance theologically and how these stories shape our imaginations of what it means for us to be Christian, on Monday, I thought I was going to preach a sermon today about how Jesus meets us in the water. As so I was thinking about what do you need to hear today, I was thinking about how the season has been so like what it is like when you enter into the water. I, I joke sometimes about how when I baptized my kids, I held them under for a while. But there are times when we remember our baptism, when we recognize that this is what has shaped our lives, that we feel like we're being held under for a while. Because when you're in the water, you, you know, you, you can't hear very well. People can be up on the pool deck yelling at each other and trying to say stuff to you, and all, it sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher. 
And when you try to talk to each other, it's, it, your whole sense, all of your senses are kind of dulled when you're under the water. And for so many of us, this season has felt like we're just in, in water. And so on Monday, I thought, well, this is the sermon then. We serve a God who does not live above the waters, but has entered the waters with us even to the place of death. And so who meets us there and holds us there and eventually brings us out into the light. But that was Monday. It's Monday, but Wednesday's coming. That's my, that's my version of the Friday, but Sunday's coming sermon. Um, but then Wednesday came. Wednesday was January the 6th. In the church calendar, January the 6th is the day of Epiphany. Kind of traditionally in the Christian calendar, you get 12 days of Christmas that take you from the 25th to January 5th. And, and when January the 5th comes, you have to tell the leaping lords to go home and you have to cook the swans of swimming and you have to put the lights away. And then Epiphany, you celebrate the visitation of the Magi and the fact that the light of God has broken into the world. Obviously, the events of January 6th um, for us as in this particular nation were incredibly troubling. I was looking forward to starting a kind of Wednesday night online theology conversation, kind of start here, and, and by the time... Wednesday late afternoon rolled around. I was having trouble pulling myself away from CNN or whoever. And I knew you were troubled and we were all troubled and we can wait a week. In kind of reading and reflecting and observing some stuff online this week, there were a number of, of Christian folks who said, you know, it's interesting on this epiphany the light came, but it did something different than what we tend to think about light doing. We usually tend to think about light just coming and erasing the darkness, but sometimes light comes and not just only erases darkness, but exposes a bunch of stuff that's there. If I give you a tour of our house, I, I love that we have a walk-in attic. Thanks, Blake. We have a cool walk-in attic. I will probably show it to you and open the door, but not turn on the light. <laughs> As I say, we have this really cool walking out. It's very big. You, you can see it later. Because if I turn on the light, you're going to discover some things about the Daniels. <laughs> we are pack rats. We have carried things with us for 30 years of marriage now that we don't know what's in them, but we know we can't get rid of them. <laughs> we are a disorganized bunch. And you know that as soon as you turn the light on. And there were so many folks this week who said, isn't it interesting on this epiphany what has been exposed in us? As a people, as a culture, as a nation. And so on Monday, I was going to talk about being in the water, but after Wednesday, I want to talk about being back on the shore.
In those moments when we're called to repentance, where we're not quite sure how to move forward, But the only way to get to what is new is to be tired of what is old. The Board of General Superintendents has invited us as a denomination to pray earnestly, to fast the next seven days or so for different things each day beginning tomorrow. And if you'd like that list, we'll post it and you can have that list. As I was thinking about what that means for us to enter into prayer, I hope you will understand this. Sometimes prayer serves as a way for us to connect with God, but sometimes prayer serves as a way for us to ignore (laughs) the realities and to move on. And so as I saw everything that happened this week, I am not convinced that just a change in leadership will make something different in our world. And as I watched it, I couldn't help but hear so many online and elsewhere talk and point to the church and ask the question, how have we been responsible for part of this? For it serves us no good to say them, they, For transformation and newness only comes when the people of God are able to say, it's not my brother, it's not my sister. It is me, O Lord, standing in the need of your grace, standing in the need of newness. And we cannot begin to pray with earnestness, and we cannot fully enter into the water until we are ready to leave what's behind. I was thinking this week about every baptism testimony I've ever heard. It's wonderful. I I hope you understand this. But and I was thinking about this yesterday. Nancy with Frank's uh, testimony of coming to faith. It's so beautiful and good, but it's so much like every other good testimony I've ever heard. There's a saying about Alcoholics Anonymous that that every confession in AA is different but exactly the same. Every moment of baptism is different because we've all had different sense of bondage to sin, but everyone's the same. It's when we finally get to the water and say, we can't live in Egypt anymore. We cannot do that. We cannot tell that story about ourselves and others anymore. We cannot live in that kind of bondage. Help us, God. We have to do something else, and we don't know where to go. So only your spirit can come and blow something new into our lives and allow us to move by your spirit into something new. That brings life and goodness and a reflection of who you are. And like Abraham and Sarah, we have no ability to give birth to this baby. It can only be you at work within us. And I don't know what that looks like and I don't know how God's going to do that. But I pray that God uses this moment to allow the American church to say, search us, oh God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there is wicked ways in us. And lead us in a whole new way. And so this morning, if you can't hear anything because the water's in your ears, I hope you will hear this. Christ meets us in the water. 
But my sense is what we need to hear today is that we are also a people on a shore. Remembering that we have been baptized. But remembering that baptism always requires an ongoing confession and repentance and an openness to the newness that God wants to do in us. And so I know that there's a lot of chaos and uncertainty But today, the people of God gathered unafraid of the light of Christ to shine and expose what needs to change in us. God, we come Um, standing at at the banks of chaos. Scared, um, fearful, frustrated. Ready, um, I hope, and I am ready, ready for something new. Not just in our world, but in us. And so today we come and, and acknowledge that the, the strange thing about baptism is that a community invites us to come into the water, but we have to do that. We go into the water alone. Confessing our sin and brokenness, confessing that we are in need of a new life and a new change. However, we, as soon as we come out of that water, there is this community filled with the Spirit that welcomes us and celebrates and puts a new robe on us and helps us to learn to walk this way. And so this morning, I suppose, God, my prayer is that that you would help us as individuals and you would help us as a church not so much to blame others but to take this day to invite your light to come and expose us and and me to repent. Uh, Forgive us for our pharisaic ways where we stand and say, oh, uh, we have been through the water. Those people need the water, but we do not. Oh, God, we need the water today. We need the Spirit today. And so we we repent and confess. For only then can our lives be open to the newness on the other side. And we pray for that today. I, I pray for some, God, who are, who are truly in the water and just feel overwhelmed. May they be reminded that they are not alone in the waters, but that you are there. You have submitted yourself to the deepest parts of the waters. And therefore, 
The tohu and bohu do not have the last word. And so may your presence sustain them there. But I pray today that you would lead us to new life. Our hope today is not in the shifts of political fortunes and winds. Our hope is in your son and the kingdom of God being shed abroad in our hearts. And so empower us with your spirit today. Help us to be your people. May we reflect your new life and your new creation in our midst. May your spirit come peacefully today and make all things new. For we pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.